Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ronald, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. My name is uh, Dr. Ronald Levant. I'm a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Akron. Um, and I've uh, spent my career studying the psychology of men and masculinity. Can you tell me a little bit about where you focus when it comes to masculinity and men? Yeah, it's a very good place to start because I think there's a lot of confusion about uh, the term masculinity, and then in the last few years, we've had this um, <clears throat> fairly negative term, toxic masculinity. So let me kind of break it all down <clears throat> in terms of the basics. <clears throat> you know, when the average person hears the word masculinity, they probably think it's synonymous with being male, a boy or a man. But social scientists understand it differently. We understand masculinity and femininity as a set of gender norms. Uh, we study social norms, which are really expectations for how people should think, feel, and behave. And we have social norms for all kinds of things, like how close you can stand to somebody or holding a door for someone. And there are also gender norms. And these uh, norms are specific to uh, particular cultures and historical eras. So the so now we're talking about gender norms and the gender norms that we're talking about are the norms for masculinity that have been place, been in place, although somewhat changed since the immediate post-World War II era. And we call that traditional masculinity ideology. And the reason why we use the word ideology is because we're referring to beliefs in the culture about how boys and men should think, feel, and behave. And this, so this is very different than assuming, you know, you can assume since we're talking about something that is variable, that is, people vary in their beliefs, you know, we can't really talk about all men when we talk about masculinity. And we also can't exclude women or people of other gender identities because women can perform masculine norms, transgender people can perform masculine norms. So I'm really trying to draw a wide separation between being male, as you and I both are, and, and masculinity. Um, and, and that's important for a variety of reasons, but I just wanna kind of see if you have any questions about that basic way that I've laid it out. What are just the, um, what are people classifying as masculinity is the thing. Like when someone identifies as like with more masculine features, I just go, what are we identifying as masculine features? Is that like chest hair? I mean, chest hair, I usually think of a lumberjack when we think of masculinity for some reason, but I've seen women lumberjack. So I don't know what to do there, but that's always like the, you know, alpha, like cigarette in the mouth rides a giant chopper like matt like alpha male type stuff i guess i mean if i'm using that word appropriately but when people say like they feel like a man or if they feel like a woman i'm like but i've cried before like it doesn't mean i'm a woman it just means i get sensitive and i i think that's a big discussion of masculinity because like even my grandpa's era i saw a man drive a hammer 
like a nail into his hand and then just make a huh! and then that's it no crying no, no pain showing of that and i was like what is is that being a man i don't know but that's kind of like this whole openness that now we talk about male mental health and everything of that sort well i think what you're alluding to uh is that these gender norms have changed your grandfather uh, grew up in an era <clears throat> when there was greater adherence to what we call uh, masculine norms. Uh, and, and maybe it might be useful to break down what are contemporary masculine norms. So these are norms for, or norms are expectations. You know, they're widely communicated in a society and everybody knows about them. And these are, most people would expect, uh, you know, if somebody uh, 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 is exhibiting masculinity to do these kinds of things. So what are they? The first thing is to avoid all things feminine. You know, every boy knows that the worst thing he can, he can be told is that he walks, talks, throws, or acts like a girl. So boys learn very early on that they should observe girls and do the opposite. So that's that's the first norm. Avoid all things feminine. Relatedly, since um, certain emotions are stereotypically classified as feminine, like empathy and warmth and compassion and sadness, you mentioned crying, uh, men, you know, masculinity, the masculine norm is to restrict the expression of vulnerable emotions. Those are emotions that make you feel vulnerable, like sadness or fear, as well as caring and attachment emotions like fondness and, 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 and need for another person. Okay, because those are considered feminine. The third norm, since gay and bisexual men in our society are considered quote unquote feminine, is to have disdain for gay and bisexual men. So that's a third norm, um, sometimes called homophobia, although I don't think it's an actual phobia. I think it's more of a, uh, a dislike or hatred. Um, fourth is be dominant. Be the dom you mentioned alpha male, so that's the fourth. The next one, be tough, be self-reliant, and have a great deal of interest in physical sexuality. So those are kind of a set of what we call contemporary masculinity norms. And as I said, these vary. We have men who meet none of these. We have men who meet some of them. We have men who meet some part way. You know, so it because like most human behavior. I mean, you, you probably took a psychology class at some point and were introduced went to, to, the to college that, for psychology. Oh, okay. Well, you probably know about the bell curve, right? Yes. The bell curve, you take any any psychological characteristics, uh, let's say aggression, and you test, there is a scale, the bus Perry aggression scale, test of 100 men, you'll, you'll get a bell curve. You'll get some men who are very aggressive, some men who are not. Same can be said with conforming to this set of masculine norms, you'll get a wide distribution of men. So, you know, this is kind of the way we approach it. Um, it's how we understand how men differ and how men vary. But we also look at some of the consequences of conforming to these norms. Is this making sense to you, yeah. Robbie? It is. Um, I mean, obviously, we talk about the old school style, contemporary um, forms of masculinity compared to the stuff we have now. I mean, I'm pretty sure you don't have to fall in any of those categories to still be considered a man. I mean, what's no, the right. the identity, though, that comes with masculinity, though? Like, if you don't have any masculine features, are you still technically considered a man? Yes, by 
if you have male genitalia, I guess, um, classify as well, male. There, there are three, three ideas here. There's <clears throat> biological sex. You mentioned the genitalia, the Y chromosome, greater uh, levels of testosterone, hair, chest, facial hair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's biological maleness. Uh, there's also a psychological idea called gender identity. And that is, you know, uh, do you identify as a man? Now, in this era, when we become more aware that of, of transgender people, we know that some people reject the sex they were assigned to at birth and either adopt you know, the, the opposite sex or become non-binary. So gender identity is kind of a, a, an idea that's apart from biological sex. Somebody could be male identified and have, a, uh, have been assigned the sex as female at birth. So that's another idea that further complicates things. But when it comes into like the areas when somebody labels something toxic masculinity, even though if you examine, like if someone calls something toxic masculinity today, and they might not even be like the older contemporary forms of masculinity, stuff we think of as very aggressive masculinity. They could just be modern. I've been called toxic masculinity by just sitting how I'm sitting right now with my legs open. I don't mean to do it. It's just how I sit. Well, the toxic masculinity is a media term. It gained a lot of uh, currency uh, after the Gillette um, ad that was released in 2019, the one oh. That coined the term toxic masculinity. Do you know about that? I knew about one in 2014 where it was a bunch of um, not some something saying that it wasn't a woman's razor or something like this. And I'm like, no, it, this it is was, different. Okay. This one, this one kind of um, is very interesting. And I'll, let me just give you the background on it because you, you and your readers may be interested. So, um, the American Psychological Association. Um, develops guidelines for psychological practice with different groups. And they've had guidelines for practice with girls and women, older adults, LGBTQI people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was president of the APA in 2005, I set up a task force to write guidelines for psychological practice with boys and men. It took 13 years because the process is very lengthy and involves multiple levels of review and revision. And the guidelines were finally approved in 2018. In 2019, the uh, magazine of APA published an article on them and issued a tweet. The tweet, like all tweets do, strip all way all con context. So the, the uh, tweet said, um, on the whole, APA guidelines say that masculinity is harmful. Well, the guidelines never said that. But um, that caused a great controversy. And Gillette had prepared this Super Bowl ad about toxic masculinity that, and you probably are aware the Super Bowl ads are extraordinarily expensive. You can spend $50 million for um, a one minute ad. They released it early because there was this uh, large conversation going on about masculinity. I mean, Fox News uh, published a picture of one of the authors of the guidelines on their website for days, uh, Breitbart, Quillette, all these right-wing websites weighed in. And then finally, the mainstream press like the Atlantic Monthly, New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker, weighed in in, in, in a different direction. And But in any event, out of that whole um, kerfuffle, if you will, the term masculine, toxic masculinity in internet culture, social scientists and academics don't use that term. It, it, it's meaningless. 
it, I did it, a little paper and I showed, I put five definitions of it that I picked up from the media. They were all different. You can't have a scientific term that doesn't have a stable definition. So we talk about either traditional masculinity ideology or conformity to masculine norms. Those are the two constructs that we use in psychology. Is so that it's, it's it's simple like gaslighting, like gaslighting that term just it's 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 I, I don't I mean know what it is. Like if you try and get someone like I'm not gonna gaslight you and it's like what? And it's like huh? And it's like it's just getting someone kind of angry, but that's a term that gets thrown around all the time and not everything gets labeled as gaslighting. It's not really necessarily has no academic value. Yeah. And the same with toxic masculinity. Now that doesn't mean that masculinity here's where the kind of the nub is that doesn't mean that masculinity isn't problematic. It doesn't mean it's not also good. It's, you know, like a lot of human things, it's complex. It's all of the above. So, you know, there are certain of the masculine norms that I mentioned to you are valuable in certain circumstances. You know, if you're in a situation where you're being confronted by, you know, say some thugs, being tough is really helpful, okay? <laughs> being able to hold your own and defend yourself or defend your family is, you know, uh, in other situations, restricting the expression of emotions is wise. Being self-reliant under certain circumstances is wise. So we do not say that masculinity is bad. We say that it's problematic in certain respects. And those are, there are three of them. The first, the first one of these, which is probably the most problematic one, is most boys, when they're very young, like elementary school are made to feel that conforming to masculine norms is obligatory. You have no choice. You must. You must not cry. You must not act like a girl. I grew up that way. That may be changing. You're a lot younger than me. Maybe it wasn't I grew as up intense. Way. Yeah. I mean, that was it, you know, and that causes a lot of damage later on because it creates in men who are raised that way, that tendency to feel ashamed of themselves when they aren't fully masculine. And that has major implications, which we can get to. The second way masculinity is problematic is the way that it's defined in our culture, you know, in the, um, well, you know, from World War II on, is that it tends to um, be oppressive in the sense that it puts certain groups of people below other groups of people. So the first group of people that it otherizes is women. That, you know, masculinity is the opposite of femininity. Femininity is bad. Masculinity is good. But it also otherizes, as I alluded to, um, sexual and gender identity minority men. They are not considered masculine. They're not considered men. But further than that, it um, also uh, tends to uh, marginalize uh, racial and ethnic identity minority men. Um, and here we're talking in the wake of the brutal killing of Tyree Walker, um, you know, in Memphis, um, you know, uh, that uh, the, the masculinity ideology I'm talking about is the masculinity ideology of white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian men. And so any other group is kind of, so that's the second reason it's problematic because, you know, it puts other groups in a down position. And the third reason it's problematic is because psychologists, sociologists, and other social scientists have been studying it for over four decades. And it's associated, you know, the masculinity that I've defined with those norms with a host of harmful outcomes. It's associated with violence, 
is associated with poor health habits and uh, a range of other uh, not so nice outcomes. So, you know, I'm, you know, what, what we tend to advocate is that men, uh, you know, revise masculinity, if you will, and find a new way of being in the world that doesn't hew to these uh, traditional norms. Does that make sense? The second one, if you could explain again what help, because you listed off a couple of things. The only thing I didn't fit was uh, Christian. <laughs> you, you labeled white, heterosexual, cisgendered male. And I've been made fun of for being that before, but I don't necessarily like, I mean, I have gay family members. I have all that. I don't see people as like what we define masculine. I mean, some of the traits that got listed off would be contemporary masculinity or the old school masculinity would just be being a dick. Sometimes I hate to say it like that, but you know, not showing pain, being homophobic. This is just jerk traits. Those aren't necessarily being conformed to being masculine. Um, well, the second one you're talking about, the one that otherizes or oppresses groups, do you see how it, it tends to put women in a lower class than men? Because it basically says that, uh, you know, men, boys and men should avoid anything that women do. Does that make sense? That does. So, yeah. And then the um, because gay and, and uh, bisexual men um you know, and, and that this part has changed dramatically since the Obergefell uh, Supreme Court decision obviously has changed society-wide, but it still exists. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that that such such men are considered less than heterosexual men or cisgendered heterosexual men. Now, the Christian thing comes up a lot nowadays. I mean, you know, uh, I live in Ohio, and I just learned that uh, the Republican-led legislature is planning to enact a rule that only Christian prayer can be used in the legislature. And we've got people of all religions in Ohio, you know, I mean, including people who have no religion, which would be me, um, <laughs> you know, but see, there's this movement going on in our society that called Christian nationalism that I think ties in with this. Um, that is, you know, like there was at one point, some of these folks were saying to non-Christians, you can stay in this country for a while. <laughs> what do you mean? I've been here all my life. So does that, is that clarifying to you? Yeah, maybe that's ingrained into the whole history of America, though. I mean, you could take that back to Hoover looking for communists and homosexuals and movies and all these other things in our country. And that was traditional masculinity ideology played a huge role in all that. But that's not the modern day style of thinking, though. Like, how do we get to a point? Like, I don't see just because I'm a white male that I have more authority or more power than another male individual of a certain other ethnicity. I think we're both. Like I that. said, not everybody endorses traditional masculinity. You don't. I don't. You know, the that's traditional is, to me. Huh? I said that's traditional to me. No, you don't endorse what I've formally just defined as traditional. And, and, and Robbie, as a matter of fact, most adult men do not. I mean, you know, it's really uh, interesting the way this works. At least most men don't consciously agree with statements like the president of the United States should always be a man and men should never so fear. Most adult men, um, you know, uh, let's say established adult men, 30 plus, uh, tend to have too much going on in their lives to worry about whether they're masculine or not. You know, they usually have a primary relationship, a vocation, 
probably financial obligations like car payments or a mortgage, maybe children. I mean, I don't really care whether you think I'm masculine. I just got to make enough money to pay the bills, right? <laughs> you know, and that's the way most adult men are. But there are there is a small minority, and I, I have data that can show this, that kind of check all the boxes. At the, they're at the high upper end of the distribution of scores. And there are also men, and this gets back to the, the obligatory part of masculinity, who feel ashamed of themselves for violating masculine norms when they were children. Does that surprise you? Examples. Well, here, yeah, I'll give you a few examples. So back in the 90s, and I know it's a long time ago, but <clears throat> and I'm doing some uh, current study to see if this is still the case. I used to lead growth groups for men. The 90s were an era of men's movements. You may have heard about Robert Bly and the mythopoetic movement and stuff like that. Men going off into the woods and beating drums and trying to recapture uh, some sense of humanity. And I was leading, I wasn't doing that kind of stuff, but I was just leading growth groups where I get together, you know, 20, 30 guys in a room and we kind of talk about you know, what it means to be a man today, right? And I would do this task where I'd hand out little cards and pencils, and I'd ask the guys to write down their top secret, the thing they never told anybody and never will, right? And I collect the cards, and I make an elaborate display of shuffling them, and I start to turn them over, and gasps go out in the room. He's going to read them, and I start reading them. And what are, what do I find? What are the, what are... These are established adult men. What are their top secrets? They would never tell anybody and never have. These are things that they are deeply ashamed of because they're top secret. I backed down from a fight in high school. I had a crush on another boy in middle school. I was too close to my mother. I cried too often. These are some of the things that adult men harbor in their hearts as a sense of shame. And it's the men who have that, not all men, not all men. Again, this, this, these are things in psychology, everything varies. Um, but some men, and the men who uh, have these feelings about themselves that they don't measure up, who's, who do not feel they measure up to their internalized ideal of masculinity, are more likely than not to engage in violence. Oh, I get it. Just the, the second example you gave me was one where I was like, did anybody talk to that individual about he might be repressing some homosexual urges? Um, I don't think that's a, something that he should be upset about being, you know, non-masculine about. I think he just needs to talk about like if he's gay, he can come out. It's fine. Nobody's going to yell at him for it. Right, right. It, yeah, you, you, you got it exactly right. You got it exactly. I'm right. hoping I'm understanding. It's a little bit complicated. I don't mean to seem like. I'm, yeah, and, I, and I'm sorry. I mean, I. You're doing a great I'm job not, of explaining it. It's just, I think, gender, the topic in general, it's like every time I've tried to talk about it before has been something I usually get yelled at if I mess up or don't understand something. But you're walking me through it nicely. It's just, I mean, backing down from a fight, I can understand that. I think I've experienced that a couple of times in my life, whether it was a smart decision or just didn't seem risky. I kind of beat myself up about some of that type of stuff, too. But. I don't, is that, I mean, is that something that's just slowly programmed? Everyone played with GI Joes when they're kids, right? I mean, that's a common, common thing. And I mean, 
half the time, I don't know if people change their GI Joes into different outfits. That's playing dolls. So I don't see, is that, I mean, that's a, that's a good example. That's a link right there. I mean, you can consider that feminine, but we, some people don't even consider that feminine. Half the time, I feel like people are doing feminine things all the time or what we would classify feminine and they don't even think about it because they're just it's not even something that they're focusing in on so i mean they could be labeled as feministic i guess um, no i think that you know the, the toys you mentioned gi joes and so forth are really gender type but let's talk about toys for a second because one of the things i follow a lot is uh gun violence and uh, really, in my most recent book, The Tough Standard, is uh, has a subtitle, The Hard Truths About Masculinity and Violence. And I'm kind of personally very just upset about the level of gun violence, even in my community. Um, and as most people should be, I mean, it's just everywhere and getting worse. So um, so we, we, you heard about this six-year-old in um, Newport News, Virginia, who took a loaded handgun and shot his teacher. And it, it got national news. Now, um, a six-year-old is at a stage of cognitive development, and I won't go into the details because they're you know kind of murky. But the, they're at a stage of cognitive development where they really don't understand that death is permanent. Yeah, six years old don't get that. I don't know if you have kids yourself, but I I had kids when I was younger, and kids do not get that. So. Uh, but on the other hand, guns are marketed as toys for boys. If you go into any toy store, I mean, I just saw an ad for a, a um, replica of an AR-15 as a toy for a boy. So we're modeling for these boys. So this boy, you know, the six-year-old, and I, I don't know what he was thinking. I, I, I'm, I'm speculating based on what I know about six-year-olds, may have thought, you know, it was a toy gun. He's playing with it. Um, also, so do you see why this becomes important? Yeah, I do. I mean, it, you can even look at examples in Walmart where they used to have uh, blue aisles and uh, pink aisles for male and female. I mean, they definitely toys definitely market towards a certain variety, Nerf guns to guys. Um, but I feel like also if you look back at old school like footage of like old family videos, I don't know how you many family videos, how far yours goes back. But boys and girls both kind of played with toy guns chasing each other, whether the girl was being chased and the guy was doing the pursuing or it was the other way around if it was that type of turn. I don't know if that was like that where you were in Ohio, but I've seen plenty of footage on that. I mean, that's just people playing with toy guns. Now, I mean, if it comes to male and masculinity being mostly of gun violence um is the question i mean I, that's one i usually see reported the most i don't really see a lot of female shooters i think there are there are almost none almost none uh the well over 90 percent of the um gun violence crimes committed in the u.s is, is committed by boys and men but the other side of the coin is well over 90 percent of boys and men would never shoot another person with a gun so you got this kind of odd thing going on that it's almost always boys and men who do the shooting, but most boys and men would never do that. I've looked into mass shooters, school shooters, and murder-suicides, which are, tend to overlap, like Columbine was all three. And uh, in those cases, um, you know, it's almost always a man or a sense. boy. Who does it? And um, uh, uh, and I 
you know, in digging into the literature. So social scientists tend to be kind of siloed. Like as a psychologist, I read psychology journals, sociologists read sociology journals and so on. But for this paper, which was published last June, I, you know, went out of my comfort zone. I read sociology, cultural anthropology, criminology, as well as psychology. And what was very interesting is I found in all of those uh, social sciences, the same finding. They use different terms and different ways of measuring it. But basically what they came up with is that uh, men, boys and men who do not, who do not feel they who do not feel adequate in their masculinity for some reason or another are the ones who are likely to resort to violence. Um, uh, I'll give you an example of an experimental study to so make it concrete. Well, that's the old bully trope is all the, the bully kids on the in all those movies, the big kid on the that beats up the little small nerdy kid is because he's inadequate with himself or there's problems at home. I don't understand the connection. You you mentioned uh never mind, let's skip it. Okay, well, if it comes back, but the the point is let me let me illustrate how this is studied. Okay, maybe that might make it clearer. You take a hundred men, and this is a psychological experiment, and you randomly assign them to a control group and an experimental group. Okay, you probably if you majored in psychology, you're probably familiar with this idea. Um, or if you even took a psychology course. The experimental group of men are asked to do a feminizing task. That is, they're asked to uh, braid the hair of a mannequin doll and put in pink ribbons. The control group is asked to do a masculine task. And these are with air quotes, right? Um, and that is to braid rope to make it stronger. After the tasks are done, each group is given the opportunity to either sit quietly in a room or punch a punching bag. Who do you think more often would choose the punch to punch the punching bag? Males. No, they're all males. Oh, um, the one that. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. The, <laughs> the one. <laughs> did, did I not explain that well enough for? You, you mentioned the braiding thing, and I have ADHD, so my brain just hooked onto the braiding thing for a minute. I go, I wouldn't want to do both of those. Those sound both sound terrible. <laughs> well, um, usually uh, psychological experiments use captive audiences of undergraduate students in psychology, and that's kind of how we do these things. Um, but in any event, it's the group who was uh, asked to do the feminizing task that much more often selected punching the punching bag. And you might ask why? Because the feminizing tasks threatened their sense of masculinity and they felt they had to demonstrate it in a powerful way. They use other tasks like giving bogus feedback on a test. They'll take a psych, give you know, the man a cycle, a group of men a psychological test and then give them feedback that they score like the typical woman. The idea is that you have an experimental task that is designed to make the man feel that his masculinity has been threatened and then see if he expresses it in aggression. And in all cases, it is. So, you know, I, I mentioned that. 
I, I get that one. Yeah. The, the, the example I was using before about the bully troop was about um, someone that is overly masculine because of the fact that they might feel like inadequate with their masculinity, such as a bully beating up a, a small child, like a, a nerd, but a better example for your one that you just gave will be like, if someone was caught with getting their fingernails painted and then they tried to get their reputation back up in their eyes, reputation as by like, doing uh starting a fight or doing something yeah, to yeah that's exactly you got it you understand it. that's exactly it but the bully one made sense a little bit right when it comes to a, a bully on a playground that's beating up someone for no apparent reason possibly because he might have an inadequacy with his masculinity that he feels like he yeah to dominate the way him. you explain it now i understand it the first time i i, I missed that um but um so here's another thing that that i want to throw in so all the studies, as good as they are, never directly assess violence because you can't. You can't create violence in a psychological laboratory. The you know the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, would never allow you to do that. So they use proxies and um, and other ways of measuring violence. So self reports of prior violence. They use scales. Um, you know. Um, these are psychological inventories that assess like misogyny or homophobia or something like that. <clears throat> and then they use experimental tasks like punching a punching bag or giving a uh, supposed confederate a supposed shock, both of which are bogus, right? That the confederate works for this experiment and the shock is not real. So, so that so all those studies are built kind of on a house of cards, right? So I found three things that actually delve into actual shooters. One is a database of school shooters put together by a psychologist, Peter Langman. And the second and third were qualitative studies of actual incidents. In the first case of um, mass shootings defined as four victims, not including the perpetrator. And the third one, the, the second qualitative study was of uh, murder suicides. And in all three of these cases, and I can go into the details if you want, the, uh, the, the, over, the universal characteristic of the shooter was a sense that his masculinity was threatened. Is that also like similar to like with anger and like a destruction rampage usually is what happens when males get mad and they don't really take it out on themselves. They take it out on other people. I, my research didn't kind of go into that. I mean, intuitively that sounds right, but I'm really just talking about what I studied and I, I was focusing on violence and gun violence as close as I could get to that. Um, you know, so, you know, just intuitively what you say makes sense that, Somebody, um, uh, you know, feels that he's been disrespected, which is often about masculinity, right? And when someone is disrespected and they go on a rampage and beat up a bunch of people, that would probably be uh, an equivalent example. I was just laser focused on gun violence and trying to, you know, get a, a better handle on that. 
Well, especially if we talk about gun, like I live near Baltimore, so there's a lot of gun violence that happens in Baltimore. And a lot of that happens to do with similar simple stuff like driving a car. Usually there's a, a certain amount of aggression that comes out when you drive a car, whether you're yelling at another driver, it's just pent up aggression. There's a study about it that talked about it's because you're hyper alert that you're in a moving vehicle. And if you feel like someone's not doing the right thing, whether it's a turn signal or swerving off into a lane, you feel like your life is threatened. So now your life is now in someone else's hands and you get aggressive about it. There's a study on that. But the whole point is, is that when two people are yelling at each other, then they decide to get out of the car. There becomes a moment where it's like, I can't back down now. And that is the masculine mentality that if you back down, you're going to look like a chump and you're going to end up thinking about it all day and beating yourself up about it. Right. Yeah. You know, I think you understand it. You understand it. There's another thing that might be worth talking about, which is emotional expressivity. You mentioned, you know, you cry, I cry. I was just listening, watching the video of the. Uh, oh, oh, I don't cry all the time. I don't cry all. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, was just... <laughs> I, I got you, bro. <laughs> no, but I was. Uh, wa- I was trying. I actually couldn't watch all of the video of the Tyree Walker shooting, but I started crying when I saw some of that. Um, you know, but there is uh, when I ask, like, I'll, I'll give lectures guest lectures to a group of students I don't know. And I'll ask them, do you know any men who can't tell you what they're feeling? And pretty much everybody raises their hands. You know, if you ask him what he's feeling, does he tell you what he's thinking or what he's going to do? And, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's universal. It's certainly not all men, but it is some men who literally cannot tell you what they're feeling. And that's, may not seem like a problem to your audience, but it is in many ways, because um, what we're talking about is a condition called alexithymia. Um, no, I didn't just sneeze. That's actually a word. <laughs> uh, it stands, alexithymia stands for without words for emotions. And it's more common among men than women. Uh, and it's largely due to uh, masculine gender role socialization of, um, of, of uh, making boys feel obligated to not express their emotions because that's girly. And it's problematic in a number of ways. Is this making sense to you? Yeah. Do you know what I'm, yeah. So um, relationships. Most relationships, except the most superficial, require some level of disclosure of how you're feeling. Um, if you can't do that, it's kind of problematic. So I had a client, um, I'm, I'm also a clinical psychologist in addition to an academic one and I treat men or have treated men. I'm, I'm retired now. And I had a man, uh, in my office say, complain that his wife wanted him to be more intimate. And he said, what does she want me to do? Rip her clothes off when she comes in the door and make love to her in the foyer? The idea of being intimate through conversation just never occurred to him. What she was talking about is, you know, sharing vulnerabilities, sharing aspirations, sharing fears. That's I don't even get sad in front of people. I choose to do that in my private free time. You can't express that type. Nobody wants to. I mean, I just I feel like that's not really more of a masculine thing the way I think about it. It's more of a thing of like, I don't feel like boring other people with my shit. 
And that's a terrible way to think about it because if you have friends that are willing to listen to you and help you out, but there's a lot of people that kind of live by this mentality of men don't cry or there's certain things like that. And that only shows in our suicide numbers. I mean, men are more like or 90% more likely to be successful at a suicide attempt if you want to call actually finishing the deed successful at it. Absolutely right. Actually, um, they're three to four times more likely. Because they use a gun and women usually end up using like pills or something like that or and men use a gun or they hang themselves or they asphyxiate women use cutting and pills, but and women attempt suicide 10 times more frequently than women but men complete suicide somewhere between three and four times more frequently than women, but what's also interesting suicide is most commonly associated with depression, but men meet criteria. Uh, using you know the diagnostic criteria, uh, uh, half as frequently as women. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that the symptoms of depression, sadness and crying and guilt and grief and all that, uh, are violate masculine norms. So men uh, basically mask their depression or uh, transform it or numb themselves out. So, you know, one common way that men deal with psychological stress is alcohol. And men meet criteria for alcohol use disorder four times as frequently as women, okay? And, um, you know, a guy's feeling really bad. Maybe he didn't get a promotion he was expected or, you know, got into an argument with a coworker, comes home, opens up the fridge and pulls out a beer, you know, and starts hitting it. So, um, you know... um, uh, so the numbers that I told you that men meet our criteria for depression half as frequently as women have to do with the fact that men mask the symptoms of depression. So I'm when I'm talking to uh, graduate students in psychology, I say, you know, when you're assessing a man for depression, think, ask him also about his substance use, his alcohol use. And ask him about some other things like uh, irritability and aggression, getting into fights and arguments. Um, another thing to ask about, you know, some men deal with emotional distress through porn addiction. And porn is just two clicks away on most computers, right? Um, you go to Google, you know, Google search and type in porn, you get a thousand images. So, um, so these are the ways in which the way that boys are reared to not be able to be aware of and express human emotions can cause problems for some men. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that that evolves from our language. We used to tell men when they fall, you know, tough it up or walk it off. And then now there's actually putting more consideration into the younger generation to actually talk about if they're okay or not. Um, obviously, there's certain things like kids when they fall and they look back at you to see if you saw you know, that type of thing. You can't really acknowledge certain things like that, but there is real thing when you were in pain back. I mean, I was told all the time when I was a kid, if I got seriously hurt, I got stitches. Don't cry. Don't, don't do that. It's not what you do. Tough it up, suck it up. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it bad parenting. I guess it's just, it's the times and the times have kind of changed, but the dangerous parts of labeling things with masculinity when it comes into the depression era is that men can't cry Men can't do certain statistics like that. And I'm not saying you need to be sensitive and cry all the time, but if someone's in an extreme amount of pain, we shouldn't feel obligated that we have to go take our shit somewhere else. Um, because that'll I completely agree. And there's a time and a place and a context. I mean, 
you know, um, you know, you mentioned you may want to not tell, uh, you know, a, a, a distant friend that you're depressed, but if you're married, you may tell your wife, you know, or your partner. Um, I mean, you know, it's obviously, you know, contextual considerations. Uh, you know, the point is, you know, who, who do you trust to be able to receive that information in a uh, helpful manner? Um, and I wouldn't trust everybody. I don't suppose most people would, right? Do you think that m most of those contemporary ideas of masculinity, I mean, we probably have like a small minority population that still believes in like a lot very anti-homophobic people. I haven't come across anybody like that before. Um, maybe one person in my life, two people. Um, it's not very common. Well, the homo the homophobia stuff is, you know, really changed society-wide rather dramatically after the Obergefell decision. Um, you know, it 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 just was so shocking. I have um, a, a gay daughter and a gay grandson, and so I'm very familiar with the issues surrounding uh, GLBTQ stuff, um, and um, uh, and. And I know how, um, you know, both of them have experienced anti-gay hostility um, in, in their lives. And, you know, it's regrettable. It happens. But I think society-wide, you know, except for small pockets, and, you, you know, and, and it may have to do with religious convictions and things of that nature. I haven't really delved, delved into it. But I do know, and there are studies that show it, that, you know, you know, most Americans now uh, accept the idea that um, that there's diversity in sexual orientation. It's not all preordained to be heterosexual. Well, people like who they like. I don't see. I don't get this whole idea like people are upset by whatever someone believes or someone feels or something like that. I'm like, you ever come in contact with that person ever again in your life? It's like going to Walmart in your sweatpants. You're never going to see any of those people again. So there's not even a point in caring about. You only worry about yourself. That's the thing. You worry about your family and you worry about yourself. That's just it's a simple thing to do. Everyone else, let them be. Let them do whatever they want to do with their lives. Well, the thing that bothers me most is how in contemporary politics, one group is attempting to impose their religious beliefs on the society as a whole. Believe in a deep state like me and you'll be good. I don't touch any of that two party crap. I believe in capitalism and all this has controlled our government it's so simple for me because whenever someone's like who'd you vote for when they say lesser of two evils i just get so upset i just go oh my god it's like if i offered to shoot you in the foot or shoot you in the arm you go oh, i'll take the foot it's like just don't get shot dude just no i'm not playing the game i don't know <laughs> it's not a dumb thing to say but i mean that's very common i always hear i look i talk to everyone from democrat republican i don't care um because that stuff, I, I just can't focus. I'm stuck in 63 with the Kennedy assassination. Um, but everybody else is like more modern day. Like, who'd you vote for? All this type of stuff. I'm like, dude, like, I don't know what you... A deep state is so much easier to believe that there's a link in with capitalism and all this type of stuff that have just influenced it. I mean, I've talked to people with government oversight into the White House talking about insider trading that goes on there. Real simple stuff. I'm like, look, I don't whatever you want to vote your president Biden Trump. I don't care. Just to me, that's just that whole. I'm really not. I, yeah, I'm not really talking about that level of politics. What I'm really talking about is the way that um, some politicians, you know, are dead set on interfering with other people's lives. So, you know, I take you know as 
The um, guy who protested the anti-gay bill and then he went to his gay son's wedding. That's a hypocrite, man. That's a that's a hypocrite. I hadn't heard about that. What I'm talking about is the Cobb decision and the Supreme Court that took away women's bodily autonomy because of one religion's belief that um that uh uh that the fetus is a person. So I mentioned earlier, I'm not religious, oh, but I, I come from uh, a Jewish heritage, and um, and I'm aware that in the Jewish religion, which I don't subscribe to, um, a, a fetus is not a person until after they're born, <clears throat> and they take in their first breath, which is the way the soul enters the body. This is in, you know, the, the Jewish Bible, the, the Torah, um, you know, so... Jews do not believe, you know, that that um, uh, that uh, a fetus is a person at six weeks or a fetus is a person at 24 weeks or a fetus is a person at conception. They believe a fetus is a person when they're born. So the, the, the group of religious people who have influenced the Supreme Court believe otherwise, but they've enforced their beliefs on the entire society. And this is what bothers me. The Ohio legislature is considering, for example, <clears throat> restricting prayer in the, in the Capitol to Christian prayer. What about all the non-Christians and all the non-believers who might be legislators? I mean, so it's this thing that I'm talking about of, of one group kind of enforcing their theological views on the rest of society. I mean, I don't agree with doing an abortion at eight months, nine months, or seven months once that thing develops a heartbeat. But I'm not going to – that's someone's choice to do whatever their body and do whatever the hell they want with it. I don't give a shit. It's not my – not going to bother me. It's not my life, my my moral or decisions. But, I mean, I get it. I mean, it's, that's people, though, influencing other people's decisions. That's just not politics or certain religion aspects. That's just people always trying to make things feel more comfortable to themselves by making other things assimilate to their structure by uh, thinking. It's tyranny is what it is. They're forcing most of society to subscribe to to believe. As I've heard it said, we want people to believe as we do. Well, I don't want to believe as you do. I want to believe as I do, right? I have autonomy. I mean, it makes sense. Like I said, I don't believe the whole eight months, nine months thing for abortion, but I'm not going to obviously stand in somebody's way if that's how they wanted to rule their life. Um, well, I'm way beyond the, the stage at which it, it would matter to me, but um, uh, but I, you know, I wouldn't want my views imposed on other people. Whatever, yeah, both whatever. sides do that, though. It's not just one side. Whether it's the progressive movement, whether it's liberals, whether it's conservatives, whether it's Republicans and Democrats, it doesn't matter. It's just everyone's influencing their own opinions into everybody. It's the one thing I notice. You go on Twitter, you get stuck in an echo chamber if you're a Democrat or Republican or whoever. There's a bunch of people that love Biden. There's a bunch of people that hate Biden. There's a bunch of people that love Trump. There's a bunch of people that hate Trump. That's everywhere you look, though. It's like if me and you both wore a blue armband. And we were like, this is what this is ours. We're both, you know, we're friends because we have this blue armband. Then there's going to be someone that wants a blue armband or there's going to be there's always this type of stuff. It's just everybody wants to. I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. Well, should we get back to masculinity? Are there other things you wanted to talk about with regards to masculinity? I got some of it when it comes to the contemporary old style of thinking. But I'm just curious. Do you ever think that we're not going to have these types of norms when it's going to be? 
just masculine features or things like some there's a lot of things i think in society that we know of that create insanity but there's a lot of things that probably influence masculinity whether it's like not programming but it's just it's in our society of like this is the a direction someone takes and then they end up becoming dominant male characteristics or masculine features um certain things like playing with guns i mean that's on every toy thing toys are marketed to toy nerf guns that's a whole giant market I mean, do you ever see that ever stopping to a point where it's not just inclusive to one or forming one specific ideology, but more going down to a different path where we can have these less contemporary forms of masculinity as much as we do now? I mean, we see it slowly changing. You know, I, if there's one message I want to get out to your audience. That's a dumb question. This. I'm sorry. What's that? <laughs> I said I had a dumb question. I'm sorry. I don't understand. I said all that, and then you were like, one thing I want to get to the audience, and I was like, oh, I don't know if you're answering my question or not. I said I must have been a dumb question. No, no, it wasn't a dumb question. I'm I'm kind of riffing off your question, if you will. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> uh, no, I, but it's, rela it's related to your question. It, it, you could say it's an answer to your question, but I'm really speaking to your audience. We have to stop forcing boys to believe that conforming to masculine norms is obligatory. We have to let boys be who they are. We have to get that message out to parents, teachers, coaches, religious counselors, makers of video games and toys. You know, we, boys vary on every single human dimension you can think of and let them be who they are. Not let's drop this idea that, you know, my no son of mine is not going to play football. You know, I've heard a father say that to me. <laughs> my grandpa said it to my dad. Huh? He said my What's grandpa that? said it to my dad. Yeah, right. And um, we just have to get away from the idea that that because someone is biologically male, they have to think, feel, and behave in a certain way. Let them think, feel, and behave. You were talking about the diversity of opinion in politics. Well, there's a diversity of personality. Let children be who they are. Do not, let's stop forcing them, you know, to be tough and dominant, unemotional, and don't cry and all that nonsense. That's my message. It's a good message. It's one I definitely agree with. Um, I just, I don't, I, I think it's, this tides are changing. You know, I have little nephews. I'm not, I don't have, don't have any kids, but I have little nephews and I see them doing things that probably I wouldn't have done when I was a kid. Um, certain feminine things i would say i wouldn't say even feminine just more non-dirt not dirt related um like i was makes me seem more of like a savage a little bit when it comes to what i was doing when i was a kid running around picking up bugs or doing something like that you know they're more focused on cleaning activities and things of that sort and i think it's interesting because it's a different time and you know i think that's the culture that you know my generation that's having kids is probably going to end up teaching their kids about because we had a bunch of the same kind of abuse that older generations had. Maybe not as bad. My grandpa used to get thrown in the water by his dad and he couldn't swim. Um, that's terrible. But, you know, I was, you know, hit and kind of, you know, tossed around a little bit more. Not I did something bad, obviously. But 
that doesn't happen with this generation of kids. My generation having kids, it's a little bit more of like, oh, it's okay. And like talking about your feelings a little bit more and even doing sit downs and discussing things a little bit more. And it's not just with one family. I've seen it through multiple of my friends that have kids. So that's interesting to me to see, um, you know, that type of growth in that factor. I wonder if that would create another era of kids that wouldn't kind of think about these masculine i honestly don't think about it a whole lot i can definitely notice most men most men don't no i think you're right and i actually did a study not not involving kids but four cohorts of adults going back to the boomers to the you know the current young adult generation and um it's a long complicated study i won't go into the details but the main point we found is that uh these are men and women and because people of any sex can have beliefs about how boys should think, feel, and behave. But the the um, the people had the gender views that they came of age with. So the older groups had the much more traditional views. The, the uh, middle-aged folks had less. The established adults had less. And the young adults had even less. So these views about how boys and men should think, feel, and behave are in fact changing. I have empirical evidence to show that. It's not across, it's not a longitudinal study, but it's looking at different cohorts of people of different ages and then testing their uh, endorsement of gender beliefs. So it is changing. And you know, a big contribution to this all is high profile people, you know, kind of uh, being open about violating masculine norms. Do you know who Kevin Love is? He's a basketball player, plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, being from Akron. He's, you know, obviously someone I would know about. He had a panic attack during the middle of the game and left and went to the locker room. And he got all sort manner of, you know, grief from that. But he went on, the, you know, uh, and spoke to the, the press the next day and was open about it. He says, yes, I suffer from anxiety disorders and panic attacks, and I'm seeing a psychotherapist and you know, it's it's helpful. And, um, you know, I was raised as a boy to never show your vulnerability and never talk about this stuff, which I think is utter and complete nonsense. And I'm talking about this now so that young boys and men will not be as imprisoned in this man box as I have been. And this is a, a you know, a four-time, you know, pro athlete uh, star forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers for a long time. You know, kind of, and this goes, you know, Terry Bradshaw did this years ago with his depression. So these high profile athletes, you know, who kind of, especially because they're male athletes and come out and sort of say that, yeah, I suffer from anxiety or yeah, I suffer from depression or yeah, I think these norms are nonsense. I think is a really good thing. I think it's going to probably normalize a lot more things. Um, I think eventually it'll be like that. I mean, we saw the Olympic, uh, forgot her name um but she talked about that she just couldn't do the thing i think what that's starting to come out more i think there's going to be more in research studies that look into athletes and pressure and i think that's just going to push the board even farther to looking into just the average adult male adult female and see what the pressure goes into that and i'm sure there's plenty of studies out there already that already talk about that type of stuff um but I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I'm sorry if I wasn't as educated as probably most people that you might talk to about these types of things. I'm- you're you're perfectly well educated and you made yourself very clear. I apologize if I didn't understand some of the things um, that you said, but 
can't help it. My ADHD, my ADHD takes me all around the board and then I try and throw it back. But that's, that's, that's definitely my fault on that one. But I, like I said, man, I appreciate you talking to me and trying to navigate me through some of this as well, too. But is there a place where people can find some of your links? Yeah. Um, my latest book, just type in thetoughstandard.com and you can find a lot of information about my work. You can take a quiz about your understanding of masculinity. Uh, you can read some sample information. So that's it. Um, I have a research website, which I don't think your audience would be interested in because it's mostly, you know, for uh, other researchers like myself. Who do you think my audience is? Sorry? Who do you think my audience is? Um, I think probably young young men and women, um, college educated would be my guess. Average range is 40 to 40, between 40 years old and 60. <laughs> you got to remember, I've talked to like people like, especially if they like House Select Committee on Assassinations, Robert Blakey, who was in charge of criminal racketeering investigations. Like I go deep down the board, man. Just, you got to, once you email somebody, bam. But I appreciate the time you gave me to talk and uh, I'll make sure I link all your links in the description and your academic profile as well to put in the description in case anyone wants to check out any of your research works. But thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.